Hello and welcome to Motorsport Now. My name is Jay Paverley and today's guest is none other than Julian Porter. And you would have heard Julian Porter on the commentary, doing stage ends, doing the TV bits on the WRC Live. But if you're a little bit older than myself, you may have actually seen him competing as well. I've found out so much about Julian, um, having done a number of events with him last year. I managed to have a, a few conversations, you know, on the way to different stages from airports to airports. And he's a really interesting guy. And I found out a lot about his career with this interview. And we talk a lot about that. And there's some few surprises along the way. And also we have a good chat about WRC and what to expect and hear his predictions about Monte Carlo, which is happening this week. I'm so excited to watch it. I'm unfortunately not going to be flying out to join the WRC team this event, um, but I will definitely um, be watching it at home. We also talk about the behind the scenes part of the World Rally Championship. As you may have heard me say or post on my social media, I was just absolutely gobsmacked at how much resource is put in behind the scenes. Like, we watch it on your phones and then you're walking into the service park and then you're seeing these huge dishes on the top of offices that have just been created just for those few days or weeks for the event. And it's quite incredible, really. And myself and Julian talk about that and also some of the frustrations that you get when you're trying to cover um, a sport which moves location throughout the day. It's, yeah, it's mind-blowing really how much they can actually do. But I won't carry on waffling on. I'll let you listen to the interview, which is rather long, but bear with this. We cover an awful lot. And uh, as I said, you get to hear Julian's predictions for Monte Carlo. Um, this was recorded last week and I've edited it uh, today on the 19th of January. So without further ado, here's Julian Porter. I wanted to start with asking you about your rallying and, and how it all started, but actually I think I want to just start with actually saying thank you, because if I hadn't got that text message when I was in a meeting at North Wales <laughs> Honda to say, can I phone you, and me fobbing you off and say, can I, can I message you back in a few hours, and you messaging back saying, it's about Rally Kenya, me sprinting, somersaulting <laughs> across the desk out of the office to call you straight away, I wouldn't have met you properly and I wouldn't have done all the WRC work so thank you very much. Uh, that's fine um I, I'm a, I, well I believe I'm a, a team player yeah I'm I'm a bit ruthless in a way uh I want to try and do the most I can the best I can and everything that I do but we need more than just Julian Porter you know there's a team of 85 90 which I think you've discovered when you were in places like Greece and uh yeah. Uh, and Finland, Kenya was a bit of a smaller team, but still probably 60 there. So, but yeah, I, I just, I'd, I'd seen the stuff you'd done on BBC Wales. So, and yeah, appreciate pre-recorded and stuff like that. But you had a, a passion that I saw and I thought, well, and normally I don't recommend people because if it goes wrong, it's always your fault. <laughs> and uh, no but yeah, we, yeah, well, yeah, it's yeah. You're one of very, very few people who I've recommended to a job, and and it was just kind of. I knew there was talk in when we were in Sardinia, even before when we were in Portugal. We need someone for Kenya. We need someone for Kenya, and I thought they were sorted. And it was only when we were in in the lounge in I think Milan Airport or somewhere, and 
they said, look, we're massively struggling. You must know somebody. And I was like, I don't recommend people. And then they went, no, but you must know. And I, I remember I was going through the phone, my phone book and my phone and just scrolling down. I get to Jay and I was like, ah. And then I, I, I didn't have the letter, but I had to search BBC Sport to find it. And all I did was I got my laptop out. I searched BBC Sport, found it. And I didn't say anything. I just said, right, watch that. And that was all I said. And I went, who's that? And I said, I've never met the girl. I said, that's, that's all I know of her. And I went, well, how do you know about this? I said, I saw it on social media. And then they're like, do you have a number? I said, well, I actually do. And then I sent you the text. And you were like, yeah, I'm in a meeting. I was like, right, okay. And I remember you saying, I'll call you in two hours. But I was on a plane in two hours. So I had to give you another number and just give you a bit of a briefing of what it was. And then 40 odd seconds later, you were phoning, which was quite amusing, really. But uh, but yeah, great opportunity. You you took um, you took an opportunity which I would say maybe five or six people didn't, and that was the inconvenience of basically not being able to come home for ten days because it was Kenya, and you were prepared to do that, which five or six other people weren't. Um, and in this in this world, this life, this job that you've got to try and grasp everything you can and. And sometimes you, I mean, don't get me wrong, it wasn't a massive punishment staying out of the country for 10 days, you know, it was, it wasn't like a thing, but it was a way of getting in and, and genuinely anybody who took what you took was fast tracking their way into an opportunity. Yeah, well, it was a, an amazing opportunity and I must thank my dad really for giving me that extra time off. And yeah, it was mad, mad flying out there. And I hadn't, I mean, I'd spoken, well, I can't really remember the correspondence we had much before, but um, yeah, flying out there when I didn't know anyone and looking back, it was a bit mad really, but it's one of the best things I've ever done. So thank you very much. <laughs> and thank you for passing that laptop over and showing yeah. in the piece. Well, I will start more about you now, Julian, because you are having stalked you as I always do. I've had a look at UWRC, looked at LinkedIn, and obviously we've had a few conversations now um, when we've been in various different countries. It's been nice actually just to talk to you briefly before we've started this. It's actually nice. We're not running around. We're not trying yeah. to get used to the camera. You're not trying to teach me everything in flat out conditions. Um, but I just want to find out how did you start this rally journey? I saw from something I read that your dad was involved with rallying. Is that how you started this passion and whole career with motorsport? Yeah, that's, yeah, my dad, he did, uh, I can't remember if he did circuit racing and such, but he did hill climbing, he did rallying, um, he had a Mini Cooper S, which he still has, uh, one of the oldest original Mini Cooper S's in the world, uh, which he hill climbed, he's owned it for his whole life, it, the car's whole life, apart from for six, six months or something, so yeah, my dad was hill climbing, rallying, uh, we have, well, had, we still have a family business, which is a car garage. We were Mitsubishi dealers. So, it, yeah, we would, I was just kind of bought into it, born into it kind of thing. And uh, he, he did, he still does his more like fun runs, you know, so he'll like go on a tour around Europe and things like that with the Mercedes-Benz Owners Club and things like that. But my dad's done the Corsica, Tour de Course Classic. I did with him the Monte Carlo Challenge uh where there was three of us there was my dad my uncle and me and me and my dad swapped the driving between it and my uncle did the co-driving and that was in 1990 i think i, I, I can't remember i think i 
overruled him and I drove called to Torini because it was a famous stage that I knew about and had heard. So, uh, but I think we, we won our class and we finished 10th, but it was kind of, yeah, always in going to motor clubs and things like that, doing auto testing in car parks. We have a couple of fields out the back of us. So when the crop had been taken out of that in the summer, I had a little mini, which I would race between the two fields. And yeah, I hit a lamppost, a telegraph pole, I rolled it uh, and <laughs> things like that. And yeah, and I had a motorized go-kart from when I was very young. And so, yeah, it was just, it was just kind of, and if I wasn't at school on a weekend, I, I'd be either cleaning the rally car. I, I've got a bit of an obsession for clean cars. I, I, the garage, when I was working here, I, I was basically car volatile. And um, I always used to take a lot longer to clean a car than anybody else, but it was good. But I was such attention to detail. Uh, it was probably quite annoying for some people because I would take maybe an hour longer, but you could tell the difference. So I would always clean the rally car when it came back and, and just things like that. So yeah, I was kind of just, there was always a rally car around uh, of some sort. And uh, my brother rallied and then I co-drove for my brother when I was 16 so I could get your signatures that you, you could get. And then uh, I applied for my driving test on the day of my birthday, but I had to wait three months before I could actually. And I remember when I went out on my first driving lesson, because I'd been driving since, I don't know, eight or nine, uh, either on the garage forecourt or go-karting or auto-testing and things. I remember before we even left the garage forecourt, the driving instructor said, I know you can drive, he said, but I have to teach you how to drive on the road. <laughs> so, uh, but I was driving every day. Uh, if there was parts to deliver for the garage, the, the parts of the driver would then have to become the passenger. And there was L plates put onto the van because I would want to drive. So I was doing, I did hundreds and hundreds of miles driving before. And I, I took my test. I passed my test. And I think I did a rally the following week or something like that. Um, just a local rally, single venue. And uh, I did one rally. And then we, this is like 1988. And then 19, I was then started karting as well as doing the odd other rally. Uh, but then I went, actually went into circuit racing. Yeah, uh, I saw a bit of that. So karting, what karts were you competing in? Uh, like 100cc karting. Uh, I, I enjoyed it, but I wasn't massively good at it. Uh, I think I won one or two races, but that was it. I, I was never going to, I didn't enjoy the wheel to wheel combat. That's of interesting. The, the, the actual, I could drive. And if it was, if it was like a single lap qualifying or I was on my own, I was very, very good. Soon as anybody came near me, I got scared uh, that I was going to have an accident or oh. I was going to get rammed off. There are some pretty but, massive accidents in karting, aren't there? So. Yeah, yeah, there is. Yeah, and you're quite vulnerable. But on, on my own, if you were like just on a test session, my times were very, very good. But actual racing and, and basically ducking and diving, I that open wheel, that kind of was, I was always a, a bit nervous of that. Yeah, and that's why rallying, obviously getting your times, and usually you are by yourself. That yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, we did in, in uh, 19, I think it was maybe 1989, we, we went to Jim, I went to Jim Russell's racing school uh, at Donington Park on, a, on, on the saloon car side. And uh, I did the week's course, which is basically, uh, it was fantastic. You know, you, you stay down there, you, you're doing classroom work, you're doing 
a little bit of media training, you're doing physical exercise, but you're doing track time as well. And you're doing a lot of track time. And there's instructors out there on the track checking you. And then at the end of the week, there's a race between the 10 or 12 of you that have been there all week. And it went okay. And then you could go back every That's month. There was every, every month there was a, another course. So you could go back and race every month. And then you you do this. So I ended up, I think I did like 10 races there over the season. Uh, and you were racing against different people, all at Donington Park. And, uh, and I won a few races and I had no issue with this door banging, knocking mirrors off because I was inside a car. I had, I didn't have this fear anymore of diving it down, sending it down the inside. And if I tap somebody, I tap somebody or I didn't have this problem. And we, there was a scholarship at the end of the year and the winner got a full season in Group N touring cars. And the second place person got, got two, two drives. And uh, I finished second behind the boss's son. Uh, which was a little bit of a, the, the, how could the boss's son actually take up uh, the, the main prize? How was he actually allowed to enter? Where there was a little, a little bit, bit dodgy. Mm. A little bit dodgy. But anyway, I finished second. I uh, for 1990, I was meant to get uh, two races. Long story short, they didn't happen because the car broke down. I was going to do a one-hour race instead of two half-an-hour races, and the car, the cam belt went on the the warm-up lap. So I, I basically only managed a warm-up lap of my prize. Uh, but in 1990, the guy who was really instructing me heavily in 89 on the touring car, on the saloon car side, he said, I think you need to go to single-seaters. And I was like, no, 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 no. I've done karting. An expensive and path as well. Yeah. So, but I did a, a year of Vauxhall Junior. I did a year in single-seaters. And I look back at the results and I maybe a, half the races I was inside the top 10, but I was on the fringes. It was seven, eight, nine. I think my best finish was fifth at Ingleston. And I don't know why, but it was like a street track and I just threw it down the inside many, many times and really enjoyed it. But I was okay at Donington, but Thruxton, I was scared of the open wheel, the high speed and the potential of touching wheels and things like this. I had a couple of sizable crashes one my fault, one not my fault. And it was the one at Snetterton, which wasn't my fault that I decided there was one race to go. I do that race and then I'm out of here. I was involved in someone else's accident. Someone spun, they rolled, a, they revert, they basically let the car roll back across the track. And uh, it, it just took me out. I ended up with one wheel left on the car after rolling four or five times. And I just sat there in the middle of the track with one wheel on it. I just thought, however much damage that's caused, financially potentially could have to me totally out of my control and I thought that's it for me I, I'm, I'm not racing single seaters again I did the last race at Thruxton and that was it but Dario Franchitti won the world champion what sorry won the championship he went on to win three IndyCar race three IndyCar five Indy 500s so you're racing against Dario Franchitti yeah yeah Dario casual like name that. drop so there Julian it's no it was it was high profile and this is I, I was seventh eighth ninth in these races and i knew i did not have what they had people like dario dave cuff marco vignali uh, another one who came in james thompson british touring car champion these were the people i was up against and i had no chance absolutely no chance so i knew that there was no point where i'd been relatively successful in the saloon cars 
I needed a body shell around me, whether that was rallying or racing, I needed a body shell around me and my confidence came back. But you know, as well as I do, you go start going circuit racing, touring cars, you need uh, corner weights, you need flatbeds. You, and we were just as a family just summarizing it and thinking, we can build a rally car in the garage down there and we can go rallying. So for 1992, that's what we did. We, we, we bought a, a, a Vauxhall Nova and we went rallying. Yeah, I saw your first rally was this at the Tuesday stages. I think yeah, we it did. Was, yeah. Basically, I did two. Uh, it, it kind of, I'd got my license through co-driving, so I had my driving license. Again, you're meant to do six events before you can go international. And uh, I, my, my fourth ever rally, and my, cause my first one was a one-off, and then I did two local rallies, single venues, and then uh, my next rally was Vauxhall Rally of Wales in 1992 and basically i didn't have the enough signatures or anything to do that but bbc top gear were sponsoring the british rally championship and they wanted to follow a young privateer in their first year of rallying which in theory is impossible to do because you can't do the british rally championship in your first year unless you manage to cram in six events in the first two months which is virtually impossible so i got special dispensation from the msa because they selected me uh, on our proposal that we put to them. So um, I went to Vauxhall Rally World, my fourth ever rally, but third proper rally. And uh, I BBC Top Gear and Tony Mason following me around. They came to the house to interview me. We had an onboard camera and I crashed after five stages. <laughs> Good TV, I suppose. It made it the classic. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. It was far better than everyone else who's in the rally who was like not making any mistakes. I was the typical kind of young kid as well yeah I come from racing but I mean I just yeah I just I just went off and rolled down just down the hillside and it was all on their camera and everything so uh, but it meant we couldn't do round two we couldn't do round three because we needed a new shell and everything so my next rally after that was Ypres so <laughs> you, you go into kind of like my second ever international rally is Ypres and that was just the biggest eye opener in the world. It was unbelievable. I had to make pace notes. I had to do, and I enjoy tarmac as well. I, I love tarmac. So it was a great spectacle, great atmosphere. Road sections were as fast as the stages were. It was a bit out of control, but what an adventure. And I was like, this is what I want to do. I want to go rallying, not racing. This is just fantastic. And that was it. Yeah, yeah, a real baptism of fire. And I mean, a bit like you going to Kenya your first proper job doing interviews right in at the deep end rather than spending three or four years on single venue events and then having to make that step you make that step right at the start and you you're you are struggling I was struggling massively I was finishing in the in the the what was it Vauxhall Nova challenge it was 20 cars and I was like 17th 18th I thought I was great but the results were rubbish you know and you have to you have to learn. You have to get faster. The only way you can get faster is, is by learning from harder competition. And uh, but the biggest thing for me in my whole running career was at the end of '93. So I did '92, '93 in BTRDA and Ancro Championship. But Christmas morning or in 1993, uh, as a kid, how old would I be? I was just born. <laughs> not thanks. to make you feel bad. sorry 21 21 22 and 
I, I wake up on Christmas morning wondering what presents you're going to get, like you do, even though when you're 21, 22, you maybe shouldn't. And I got presented with an envelope. And uh, I was thinking, what's this? Where's the big present? You know, <laughs> where's the big? And the envelope was um, really badly handwritten on the front of it. I couldn't really read it. And I opened up the envelope, read it. Uh, Pentaricola Radish School on the top, and I, I still couldn't quite grasp what it was. I read the um, read the letter, and I'm not the most intelligent of person. I left school at 15 without any exams to my name at all. I, the school rang my parents and said, "We recommend you take Julian out of school. He's not going to succeed. He all he wants to do is go racing. He's not going to learn that here." So I, I I struggled to read and write and things like this and. Uh, I was struggling to read this letter. I couldn't, the writing was bad, but I didn't understand it. And I turned, I said, I don't understand it. And they went, we're sending you to see Pendia for a day. And it was the biggest shock in my life. And I was so scared. I did not want to do it. And because all of a sudden you've got this guy who's won the 1989 RSC, right? He's been a factory driver for years and years and years. He's going to tell me if I'm good enough. And if I'm not good enough, he's going to tell my mum and dad. And that's it. No more motorsport. And I was like, oh, my God. And I, was, I drove down to his house. I stayed at his house for two nights. I drove down to his house, and I was just so scared, not looking forward to it. I remember turning up at the gates, pressing the buzzer. It's Julian Porter. I've come to meet Pentaricula. He came out to the gate as large as in life. Absolutely beautiful guy. Had dinner in his house. We stayed up to, I don't know, till midnight, one o'clock, talking rally, showing me all his stuff and everything. Next day, we went on this training course, just one-on-one, -on -one, teaching me about general driving techniques and left-foot braking on this airfield. And I felt it was going okay and everything. And then just before we went and had lunch, we, went, we drove off, we went and had lunch, went back, and about an hour after lunch, he went, he says, I think we should stop now. And I was like, what? I said, uh, right, okay, why is that? He goes, I don't think I can teach you anymore. And I was like, oh, no, I'm thinking, oh, I'm that bad, he can't teach me anymore. He's had three quarters of a day. I, I, we've had three quarters of a day and he can't teach me anymore. And I went, okay. I said, why, what's wrong? He goes, nothing. And he says, absolutely brilliant. He goes, he says, you just need confidence. He says, you can drive. He says, you just need confidence. And we had a big chat that night over dinner. And he goes, so why are you finishing 16, 17? I said, because I don't believe I can do it. He goes, but they're all in Vauxhall, Vauxhall Novas like you are. He says, it's a one-make championship. He said, it's down to ability. He says, you've got the ability. You just need to show that. And I was like, kind of, okay, right. And I came away from there thinking, well, if he thinks I can do it, I must be able to do it. That, that belief, someone believing in you, someone be giving you that confidence that you can do it, completely transformed how I drove, how I approached everything. It was, it, and, and I, anything I try and do, like when, when you were coming to Kenya, I gave you as much encouragement as I possibly could because people, you believe in yourself a lot more, you know? And it's all about, making people believe in themselves don't knock them down if you start knocking people down and criticizing them they're just going to get worse and worse and worse and it's, it's, it's a positive energy thing and 
I remember Penty rang me about three days later. How, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm fine. Yeah. He said, I've got a school on this weekend. I want you to come down and teach. I'd never done any teaching in my life. Uh, so I went back down to Maidenhead the week later. And that is Penty Rickler and Julian Porter. The confidence that gave you was just incredible. And uh, I went to the, the first round of the Ankara Championship. I was in a 1600 Nova up against two litre Group A cars. It was Group A Nova, but two litre Group A cars, etc. And we won Formula Two outright. We should never have done it. And we did it. And it was all about the confidence and the belief of, well, Penji Rickler says I can do it, so I must be able to. And that season, I think we did 22 rallies. I got beat twice. I crashed twice. I won everything else. It was the most incredible. We, we were virtually unstoppable. All from this one and a half days with Penji Rickler of making me believe in myself and making me realize you can do this. Um, that positive energy, I, I took that from 1993 even to now. Let people believe in themselves. Don't knock them down. And that's the big thing, huge thing in people. I guess you must have seen that over the years with the variety of drivers that you've seen with different levels of confidence and that relationship with the team and driver playing out with confidence. Yeah, you, you see the people who keep getting hammered. You know, uh, we all believe we're the best in what we do. Everybody, you've got to believe. But if you've got someone, your boss or someone, or you just keep getting, and this is where social media can be bad because in social media, you could have a hundred, you could make a post and you could have a hundred comments. 99 of them would be great. One would be negative. You will focus on that negative. And you've got to try and, uh, yeah, some people that, that is, just might never make it, but you've got to not be soft, be hard, but encourage people, encourage people to push the envelope, encourage people to do things and uh, and believe in themselves. That's it, believe in themselves. Uh, and it, it makes it such a difference. In, and you do see it in drivers who believe they can do it or co-drivers or whatever, team managers. Yari Matti uh, you know, who believed he could ever be a team manager? Whoever really thought that he would be a team manager? He just guided Toyota last year to a world championship. Uh, manufacturers, drivers, co-drivers, second in the championship. And, and it's about that passion that he puts into it and into the drivers and into the team. of We're all here because we love it. Let's go and enjoy it. Yes, it's a business. It's a big business. It's a hard business. But let's try and enjoy it and have some fun along the way. And then we will all enjoy it a bit more. And when I need an hour out of them at the end of the day, I, I will get that hour because... We're all one big happy family. And it's a big positive energy thing. It really is a big positive energy thing. And, and it, it's still, it, it, it's with me all the time. And from that day, from those that day, day and a half with Pentaricola and him believing in me was then what set me along. I, I'm not saying I had the most successful career, but I had a good time driving cars and I was relatively successful, which then played into the, the job I have now. My, my, after, my after career has been longer than my, my driving career. But I was obviously established enough for WRC TV to consider me for the job. So, so you had that experience with the BBC when they were doing the, the coverage for you in that first international rally that you did. So you yeah. saw how it worked. Did that spark your interest to go towards the media or was that just something that happened to happen? It was something that happened. So, I mean, if we, so in 94, as I said, we did 
a massive season. And uh, there was potential for um, 95, we signed with Honda to drive the, the Group N Civic in the British Rally Championship. I did two rallies. I couldn't drive the car. I hated it. Don't say I that about Hondas. <laughs> I, I, I just, I'd gone from a Group A Nova, which was like pulling from 1500 revs round to six or 7,000 revs to this car, that this VTEC engine that did not work until about 7,000 revs. Yeah, and well, I just couldn't. It's part of the I just, uniqueness yeah, I just of that, that generation it. of Civic. Yeah, I just couldn't drive it. And I was terrible in it. I did two rallies. I rolled on the first one, again in Wales. And then I went off on stage two on the second one. I think I finished last or second last on the Pirelli rally. It was either last or second last. And that was it. I just said to my parents uh, and the guy who was advising us, I, I said, unless I get proper, proper testing, I said, I'm not doing any more rallies. And Honda released me, but I wasn't allowed to compete in the British Rally Championship for the rest of the year. So I sat on the sidelines. Nissan asked me to do a rally uh, in their micro, so I did that. And I did gravel notes for Yama Ketelato uh, in, in Vauxhall's team, which is quite interesting. A Finnish crew, and there was uh, me and a guy called Mike Broad, who very successfully co-drove for Russell Brooks and people like that. He was the co-driver. He spoke a limited finish. I spoke no finish, but we did a gravel, gravel notes on the tarmac rounds of the British Rally Championship for Yarmouk Tomato. And, uh, and then I did some weather crewing for Vauxhall. And at the end of the year, they were moving from like the Nova to the Corsa. And there was a chance that I was going to drive the Corsa for Vauxhall, but it never came off. So we went Mitsubishi through the dealership. We got a Mitsubishi and we had three years in the Mitsubishi and then um, did RAC 96, 97. Sorry, did, I can see on here, Ryan Champion. Did he navigate for you? Yes. Did, you, did he? No, yeah, that was, yeah. Ryan, basically this was Truck Rod Rally and uh, it was, uh, it was local rally. I'm trying to think what year it was, 96? What year 96, was yeah. 96, so we'd done a, we started on the Pirelli rally because the car wasn't ready for the Vauxhall Sport because it was had to get it brought in from Japan and everything. So we started with Pirelli and, and I was struggling with it. You know, I'd come from two-wheel drive, then four-wheel drive, turbocharged. I was struggling and I was a little bit lost with setup and things like this. And so uh, we were doing a lot of extra rallies. We did the Ducrees, anything we could do in Ancro or BTRDA, we were doing as extra events just to try and get up to speed. And I went to do the track road rally and Eric Evans was my co-driver um, and he had to withdraw very last minute. And Ryan Champion was the boyfriend of my sister. And he was around at the house when the call came that Eric had to pull out. And he goes, well, I'm not doing anything, I'll co-drive for you. Now, Ryan and me were big rivals in the British Rally Championship. We were against each other in Evo 3s in the British Rally Championship. And I'm thinking, sorry, you know, he was in a Subaru. He was in a Subaru, I was, I was in a Mitsubishi and I was like, this is one of my rivals for the British Rally Championship in Group N. Do I really want him inside my car getting any secrets and things like this? But Ryan, New Yorkshire. So we went and did it. And we were battling for third overall going into the final stage. I had no idea how we were doing until about four stages in. Because. Um, Do you not want we to know? It wasn't so much that, but it was just. I was thinking, oh, I've got Ryan as my co driver. 
probably we, calling the wrong not, notes. We, no, 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 not calling the wrong notes. Far from it. <laughs> On purpose. Frankie, he was, he was encouraging me massively. He was going, this is flat. I remember it. This is flat. Oh, there we go. <laughs> and, uh, and But it was just like one of these days where you were just kind of like, wow, this is amazing. And and I remember like Steve Petch and people like this, regular Group N drivers in the Anchor Championship coming up to me going, Cranky, you're putting us to shame. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Because I genuinely had no idea what we were doing, how we were doing. And Ryan came up to me and he goes, yeah, I didn't tell you. He says, we're fourth overall and we're leading Group N by over a minute. And I was like, right. But this is the difference. Like when you look at it from BTRTA to Ancro, there is a gap. There's a performance gap. And then you go, you jump to the BRC, the British Rider Championship. And again, there's a performance leap. To be up with people like Ryan and David Higgins and Neil and Neil Simpson and people like that, you have to go quicker. So when you you then carry that speed into a lower championship, you are hopefully going to do what we were doing that day. And I remember going into the last stage. It was a it was it was like a stately home stage, which I love. I love spectator stages. I don't know why stately home stages I love. And uh, Steve Smith was in third place in, in his Group A into Grali, and we were less than ten seconds behind him. And I'd put, I'd put racing tires on where everyone else had gone gravel tires because I knew the stage from the year before. 70% broken tarmac. So I was like, kind of, I'm going to go tarmac tires. And we'd worked out whilst we were queuing for the stage how long it was taking them to do the first loop. So we were working out, okay, right. So Steve Smith, it's taken him a minute or something to do this loop before when they came back round past the start. And I, when we were in there, we went into the stage and we were like, it's taken us 55 seconds or something to do this loop. So we knew at this point we were like maybe into third overall. And then uh, I, I went off on the last corner. And uh, basically I went through the yellow boards and then I, I spun because it was a very, very, very long, long, long right-hander. And Ryan was saying, slow, 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 slow. And I was thinking, yeah, but we're in the yellow boards between the red boards. And basically I went off between the yellow and the red boards. Oh so I didn't God, go between the red no. boards. And we dropped down this like, I don't know, 10 meter hillside, didn't roll or anything, just went off backwards. And uh, I just turned to him and said, what's the best way out? And he looked at me and he went, I've never been in this field before. So we, we dropped like a minute getting back onto the road. And I argued my case of I'd gone past the red board, so I should get the time. No, no, if you looked at that between in the field and, and like, it was lined yeah, up they'll go but you didn't go between the red boards i said yeah, but i went past them and i argued and argued and argued but i didn't get it we still i think finished fourth or something fourth or fifth overall and we won group n but it was it was a great day and uh so yeah we did group n we did rac that year and uh finished 12th overall third in group n i'd be honest it should have been a lot better uh it should have been a lot lot better but i spent uh seven minutes i think in a ditch in in one of the keel stages like like probably everybody who did that run it was so snowy unbelievable conditions and it was just amazing you were either you do a stay i remember we did pundashaw 29 miles or something and we went into the stage i think 40 or 50th on the road and i remember getting to the end of it we started it in daylight finished in dark and you know, on a rally, they come up to you at the end of a stage and they go, have you seen these car? Have you seen this car off the road? Are they OK? The list was about 15 or 20 cars long. And you're like, well, I overtook about five, but I haven't seen the rest. It was so treacherous this day in Kielder, the snow and ice. And I remember 
in Hampstead stage, it was my local stage, and the marshals had warned me about the first downhill hairpin. Uh, there's eight cars off there. So just watch out. Right, okay. So went down there, like first gear got around. And I think I overtook like four cars in this one stage, actually moving cars, not ones that were parked. And you would either finish a stage like in six fastest or something, or you would be like 56, depending on how you coped with the snow. And then the next day was stately home stages. And I think I was third fastest twice. I was second fastest for a while on Trentham Gardens and Steve Hill beat me. And I was thinking, I know it wasn't a full world rally. It was a Formula Two round only, but Vattenham was there, Schwartz was there, Kankinen was there. And, and there's, there was my name, like third fastest overall on a world championship rally stage. I was like, my God. And again, it was all about confidence. You know, it was all about confidence. So we did 96 there and then 97, 98 in the Mitsubishi and British Championship. Won Group N, I think, a couple of times. Should have probably done better. And uh, But we were testing, we were doing nothing. The first time I drove the car was stage one, you know, and it wasn't like it is now where everyone does a test. It was, it was quite different. And we were starting to get more professional people into it. Barrett's, Barrett's with Higgins and people like this, and they were testing and throwing new tires at it and everything like that. So it was still a privateer effort for us, but a, a well-funded privateer effort, but no factory support as such. And then 98, yeah, after Ulster, before the Manx, ferries are booked, everything's booked, hotels, accommodation, the lot is all booked. And my phone rings with a number, I just have no idea who it is. And I remember I was doing a drive day for, for somebody and I was just basically checking the route over for these for the, the customers to drive the following day uh, I answered the phone and uh, I, I, I think it was Alex Catamore I can't even remember but I'm sure it was Alex Catamore and uh, he says hi Julian he says, it's Alex Catamore from Ford Motorsport and I was like all right hi yeah he says well he says for three years he says you've been uh, I suspect painstakingly sending me pre-event press releases and post-event press releases with how you're progressing and everything like this and season review press releases and I went, yes, okay. He goes, well, your hard work's about to pay off, hopefully. And I was like, okay, right, why is that? He says, we basically have just dropped our number two driver for the Manx, and I need a driver to basically commit in the next 15 minutes to change the entry before it's too late. Will you take over the seat? And I was and like- And you were like, um, no, sorry, don't feel like Yeah, it. <laughs> I, I was kind of like, I, put, I knew it, I was sponsored by Pirelli. I basically, I didn't pay for a tire, from 19, middle of 1996, 97, 98, and, uh, for a pretty tire because I got on very well with the marketing manager and I did a few corporate days for them. And but I knew this was a Dunlop back car. And I was like, I said, yes, I'll do it. But I do just need to tell Pirelli. I said, because, and they went, yeah, yeah, you're sponsored by Pirelli. And this is a Dunlop car. I said, yeah, yeah. I said, yes, I'm coming, but I just need to check they're okay with it. Uh, I had to take the, the drive, the, the, the co-driver that was in the car, because you could only change one part of the entry. Uh, it was left on drive. It was everything. It was completely new to me. And uh, I rang Pirelli and the, 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 the guy at Pirelli went, this is everything we've dreamed of. Everything we've dreamed of. He says, just say yes. He says, and let's work on a deal with the team for next year, but with Pirelli. I was like, great, brilliant. And he even still came to the rally. He still came to the rally to watch because <laughs> he was coming anyway and uh, I, I remember we, we did the deal I paid for nothing everything was 
all done. We canceled the ferries. The mechanics came over to watch the rally because they all had their accommodation booked and they went and watched and uh, we did the event. Uh, I went to Bowler Motorsport, ran the car. I went down to them to drive the car the following day, uh, have a seat fitting and everything. And I just drove it on the road, didn't drive it. Like first time I drove the car properly was in, in the Isle of Man. Uh, I borrowed a car of Ryan Champion for Recky. He had a left-hand drive legacy. Ryan lent me his car. And uh, I went and did the Recky and I did the shakedown. And I always remember doing the shakedown, came off the start line, did through the stage. Difficult stage anyway, very, very undulating. And I got to the end, it was remote service and the, the, the mechanic came over. So, so what was it like? I went, awful. I said, it was terrible. And he goes, what do you mean? I said, the car's pulling left and right. I said, it's all over the place. I said, there's got to be something wrong with it. And he went, no, 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 no. He says, this is 300 brake horsepower, front wheel drive car. He said, that's talks to you. I said, I've never known anything like it. I said, I, I, said, I can't drive this car if it's gonna be like that. He goes, just go and do a few more laps. And uh, basically I just had to finish to, to gain the points that the team needed. Not that we were winning anything, but just to get the points that they wanted. And if I finished and I didn't make any mistakes, they would talk to me about the following year. Uh, so I finished, I did the job and when I say did the job, I got round without scratching it and learned a lot. Uh, I have to say, I loved it. I massively enjoyed it, but I wasn't super great. You know, I, it was so out of change what as I well. was used to. Yeah, yeah, massive change, you know, everything being done for you not a worry in the world about things just just come and drive the car and I was like right but then we did the deal for the following year but with Pirelli backing and then I had a whole year in that car and I yes unfortunately for us Seat were there Volkswagen were there Peugeot were there uh who else was in there Renault you, you know what I mean there was like 15 F2 kit cars and and apart from myself Eggleston, Simonites, potentially. We were in Fords, but we were still funding it half ourselves. The car came free, the tyre deal came. We still had to pay the mechanics and things like that. Whereas you're up against Mark Higgins, Tapio Laukinen, uh, Ryman Bumschlanger, people who were basically their next step was the World Rally Championship and they were already doing World Rallies. So I decided that I was never going to win anything. But I wanted it. I, the only way I was going to have a good championship position was by finishing every round. That was how I went at it. So I didn't take every single ultimate risk. I wanted to get as much mileage out of it as possible. And I enjoyed it. I loved it. I thought it was great. Uh, and the Isle of Man in, in that car is just one of the dreams. Uh, and if I was to go, if, if people say to you, oh, would, would you like to drive a car again? Would you like to do this? I, if someone said to me, we'll give you anything you want, any car you want on any piece of road, it would probably be an F2 kit car in the Isle of Man. It, it, the feeling I got that day was just, that weekend in the Isle was just phenomenal. It was amazing. It was just fab. And even Craig Green still, he, uh, on my birthday last year, 2021, he even said in a video message, as long, whatever I succeed in and whatever I achieve in rallying, he says, you've always got something that I want to do. And that is drive a state-of-the-art kit car. <laughs> and he says, I've never managed to do it. So, so yeah, we were, it was a very good time for British Rally Championship. You know, John Horton did an amazing job and the manufacturers bought into his, his vision. And, and we, we had them all there, you know, the big, big superstars uh, uh, of up and coming superstars, you know. 
such a different era because you had all those manufacturers backing people that are competing yeah, in British yeah. rallying. You just don't get that now. No, but I mean, I when I was driving in Group N, I, I was one of my competitors. I, I won't say I competed against him. I competed against him. I didn't. I wasn't with him because he was better than me. Was was Harry Robin Pera? You know, oh, so, I, I, so I was competing against Harry Robin Pera. When I was doing the British Rally Championship, we had Gwyneth Evans, Harry Robin Pera, Higgins is people like this. So, and now I'm interviewing Elvin. I competed against his dad, you know, and it was quite funny because when Callie won in Estonia, so I stayed in Kenya for two days to go on safari and I went with Scott and Martin and uh, Yoni Halton and Callie's, uh, Callie uh, and, and Elvin's co drivers. And Scott knew exactly what I'd done in, in competition, but Yoni didn't really know. And he then discovered over these two days that I'd done a little bit and things. And uh, it was quite interesting because when Callie won in Estonia, we do an interview with the winner of the rally afterwards. And Callie came in, sat down and chatting to Callie. And Callie went to, he said, I, I, I never realized you competed. He said, I had no idea you competed. He goes, he goes, and you competed against my dad. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, yeah. He goes, I never knew this. He says, he says, you never broadcast this. You never highlight this. He said, I just thought you were very knowledgeable and a very like super big fan. <laughs> and he says, that's how you knew so much. And I was like, no, no, I said, I did a bit. And he goes, yeah, but you competed against my dad. I said, we were in the same rally. <laughs> I said, maybe I wasn't like super close, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it was a big heyday for British Championship. The Robin Perez, Gardermeisters, Evanses, Higginses, you know, I'm trying to even think who else was in there, Tapio Lauken and there was some big, big names. And I knew I was never going to beat them because I was not that good. But I, so I went to it as a different approach of trying to accumulate as many points as possible, get as many top 10 finishes as possible and pick up the pieces. And, and that's how we did it. And we were top kind of privately. I think we were seventh in the overall championship at the end of it because we finished nearly every round. Some weren't good. We had a crash in the Adaman, which I still managed to get round. Uh, we had a fuel pressure problem in the Pirelli, but you know, Scotland was the other rallies. We were nearly in the top 10 all the time, but seventh, eighth, ninth, but we were there collecting points. So, but it was a great, great experience, massive experience. And it was the following year, 2000, where Ford pulled out. We were in that mix of super 1600 F2 and things. And I was working, helping a female driver called Natalie Barrett um just generally helping and looking after her seeing how, how she was getting on and she wanted to do some world rallies so i drove her motorhome to and from world rallies with the recce car on the back and we'd go testing and we do all this and i think i did i did about three years with natalie doing this but it was while i was doing this the wrc tv called and i couldn't do the first three events they wanted me to do i was like oh my god i can't do these events no and it just I then got the opportunity of basically going to New Zealand in 2000. This is the first opportunity that they offered me that I could do. And so I flew to New Zealand and did rally New Zealand as a camera assistant. And uh, just was just absolutely gobsmacked that I'd been paid to travel to New Zealand and then doing this job. And uh, I decided whilst I was there, I was then offered a job because that was the last rally of that promoter, a new promoter coming in. And I was offered a job with the new promoter as a camera assistant uh, for the rest of the season. And very quickly, 
really quickly in that space of New Zealand and Finland, the two weeks, I made a, a decision in my mind, do I chase sponsorship, do I chase deals? I'm 28 years old, or do I really put everything into this job here with the TV and try and become, I, I, I was just assisting, but I was doing, because I had the knowledge of driving, I knew Burns, McRae, uh, these people I, I'd done the British Championship with, while I was starting, they were at the top. So I, my name was kind of known to them. And we'd hang around in similar circles. So I wasn't friends with them, but they knew who I was. So that kind of helped me a little bit to potentially open doors. And I knew who Rally Art were, Mitsubishi were, because of my contacts through driving the Mitsubishi for three years. So if we needed something off Mitsubishi, with the, particularly with the new promoter, they might send me in to go and kind of ask the question. And uh, in court, in, in Cyprus, I, I just knew Cyprus was going to be a difficult rally. And it was a new promoter. We'd only done three rallies, two rallies with the promoter. And we were going from one stage to the next. And we passed two cars broken down on the side of the road. So I jumped out of the car, stopped, the, got the, the, the cameraman to stop. We got out of the car, we filmed it, interviewed Alistair McRae trying to repair his car. And the new promoter bosses were like, what's going on? What, what, what are they fixing the car for? Well, that's what they have to do on rally. And they were like, really? And they were like, but how did you know they'd broken down? Well, I just came across them on the road section. And they were like, but this is what we've got to do. This is what we've got to do. This, this is like real, like different story to any other motorsport. And that is where your stage end interviews were happening before sporadically, maybe one stage a day. That is where, in my, in what I believe, is where tracing and tracking cars on road sections to get roadside repairs. And we were basically just sitting on road sections, every rally, listening to the team scanners. Someone came out with a problem, we're following Rob and Pera, or following Gronholm, he's on three wheels. Follow them, get this interview, get them working on the car. And then we'd go to another stage. And then it evolved into, well, why wait on the side of the road to hear what's going on? Because they might not tell you on the radio. So why don't you go to the end of the stage and actually interview them? And then if they have a problem, you can follow them. I was like, okay. So we started going to the end of stages, doing interviews. And it was left up to me to decide whether I thought that's not worth following or that is worth following. And we were getting the reports through the stage, like you would be getting on WRC on, in Kenya and things like that, of, Oh, Gronholm's going slowly. He's on three wheels. Okay, we're going to wait for Gronholm. Then we're going. And in theory, that's where that kind of, th this real big obsession with stage end interviews started. They were being done before, but not to this kind of like, get as many stages as you possibly can. Not just do one today. If you could do 10 today, do 10. And chase the story, chase the story. And, and that's basically what, we were known as Vulture Camp. Wherever we turned up, there was a problem. We never turned up with good news. We were always turning up when they had a problem, you know? Oh, here comes Julian and his cameraman. We've obviously got a problem. And, <laughs> and they knew that if they and, saw you. And yeah, yeah. And that's what, and that's what, that's what we did. And uh, it completely kind of changed. It gave a whole new insight to particularly the new people who were running a championship. They had no idea this was happening. So this was, this was a great new kind of thing for them. It's a huge mammoth operation behind the scenes. And I think I was absolutely stunned when I first saw these little pods with these 
big buildings and marquees that obviously just grow and get put together before we get there. And there's so many people that put, you know, all the hard work in an organization. But I just can't believe how much goes on. And I think having been on my sofa watching it at home, um, and then actually going out there and seeing how it works, I just can't believe how many people are there. And you've got the planes going over, you have to get the signal right. A few, I mean, you must just get used to it now, but have you just seen it grow and then it's just something size yeah. now? Well, it, it it was uh... I remember Finland with the new promoter, North One TV, David Richards' uh, ISC con uh, company. And I turned up in Finland and there was all these massive silver trucks, four or five of them, you know, big hospitality and everything. I was like, wow, this is incredible. And we had this for a, a few years and then we scaled down and, and we've not gone in theory kind of back to that level of on-site real visual presence like in the middle of the service park, big trucks, big hospitality, you know? Uh, yeah, we have the pods, but as you know, as you've witnessed, a lot of the time, these, these pods, if people are wondering what a pod is, it's basically, a, it's, a, it's a box, I'm not sure. How big is it? Three meters by three meters or something like that? It's like a it's, small office size. Yeah, small office size. And, huge dishes and, on and top. basically there's three of them, isn't there, on, the, on, in the team, in, in, on every world rally. And this is where... The pictures all come into, the sound all comes into, uh, and this is how all live and, and all and WRC TV runs. Uh, getting the pictures from the cameras into there and then out to the TV. And I remember when they turned up, I thought they were super cool, and they're still super cool. And But there is, you see on all live, uh, regularly on a weekend, you'll see Bex, Kiri, myself, you, Molly, Seb Marshall, whoever's at the stage end, and you might see regularly six or seven people in front of a camera. You times that by 10 to make it 60, 70, 80 people who actually are there to make that happen. And we are a tiny piece, a tiny piece in that happening. And for you to ask those questions at the end of the three rallies you did, You've got a cameraman who's filming it. You've got a tech, an RF technician making sure that the signal is working and the microphone is working. So then they, they go back to everybody back at base in the service park to then basically put it out through the plane and the satellite. But to have all that happening, there's logistics people making sure that everyone's getting to the right place at the right time. It, it's a phenomenal setup. I mean, we have the biggest team. WRC TV is the biggest team in the service park. We, have, we work on about 100 people on site. You know, Toyota and everyone is only allowed 71. Uh, we're running about 100. And uh, and it's not plain sailing. It's not simple. It's not. And, and when the, the connection breaks and things like that, it is frustrating for the fans who paid their money. But there's 100 people working like you would not believe to get that picture back. It is phenomenal. You explained it really to me. Is really interesting i was watching it with my mum actually when it was um i can't remember which one but we were watching it together and, and my mum was like oh i feel really sad that some of the other people don't get coverage and don't get an interview and then i think i kind of half asked you this question when we were somewhere and you explained that that would mean a whole new team put in place a whole new like setup and it's just not possible is it to get all that coverage no, it's not. And yeah, we, we have 15 onboard cameras, uh, which is world rally cars, and then however many left 
goes into the leading WRC2 cars. And the numbers involved, you know, to, we, we have a, an aeroplane running way above the rally. People know about it, people who follow flight tracking, you can see it. Uh, this plane's got to refuel. We have a helicopter going that's got to refuel. And until the plane is back in, in, in the vicinity of the stage, we don't get any pictures. We get nothing. So, and that plane sometime, when it goes to refuel, it's refueling in a standard airport with British Airways or with EasyJet or whatever. And if there's a queue, it's got to wait in the queue. And sometimes that's why we are late going back on air with pictures for a stage after, after lunch, for example, is because the plane's been in a queue with your holiday makers coming back from wherever it is or being dropped off. And, and, and people, but we don't highlight these things, but that's what's going on. And then the plane on a, on a, on a sea level rally, the footprint is bigger. It has about a 10 kilometer footprint, but on a rally that's in sea level, that it, it, it can fly higher. It can be further above the gap between the, the road of the stage and the plane the footprint can spread further. But when you're in the mountains, two or 3,000 feet up, it can only go to a certain level. So the footprint in theory can't spread as much with the, with the range. And then you put a stage that goes, starts, it's 40 kilometers long, but it starts on one side of the mountain and goes to the other. In this footprint that the plane has with its signals, there might only be three cars. Whereas if it's a stage that loops like the Calder Torini or something that loops around itself, you might be able to get 10 cars within the radius of signal. So, so then the next stage starts. So the plane needs to move on because we want to be following the first cars in the stage, the Ogiers, the Tanax. And yes, you miss WRC2, WRC3, JWRC. And if you want to cover them, you're going to have to run two stages at once to start with because stage two is running while stage one is running. We all know that it takes an hour and a half, two hours to run the, the, the stage. But you're going to need a second plane. You're going to need a second helicopter, a second set of production staff, reporters, cameramen. So your subscription of 89 euros or whatever it is becomes 189 euros or something like this. And if we're really, really honest, how many people are going to pay extra money for the odd time they're going to sit and watch WRC3 and Junior because they're going to want to watch Oit Tanak at 180 kilometers an hour and Sebastian Ogier and people like that. Yes, there will be family interest in the juniors and things like this. And this is why Bex, myself, Kiri, and we push really hard in, in service, massively hard in service to try and get more coverage for WRC3, 2, 3 and juniors because that's when we can give them the coverage. But stage-wise, you're looking at um, another several million euros a year to get that coverage. And I believe if you put that on, the percentage of people staying to watch stage one when stage two is happening will be so minimal. It would last one or two rallies and then it, it, you would ditch it. And because you, you, your big diehards want to watch the leading drivers at the best speeds. Uh, and your junior drivers are absolutely on the limit. They're flat out. They're absolutely flat out, but they don't look anything like a world rally car coming past. So it's a, it, it's a real difficult one, and we're not on a circuit. If we were on a circuit, you could potentially do it, but because of the, the geography of a rally, 
trying to run two separate items, it, it's, it's millions and millions and millions of euros. It's just not viable. It really isn't. With all the will in the world and all the passion and everything, it's just not viable, unfortunately. And that's why we push hard with recaps from WRC 2-3 juniors. We push hard with showing those. Anytime we can, we can try and get into morning service or a media zone at lunchtime where we can get a, a, a two or three or a junior driver. We try and push this hard and we push it with them as well. As soon as you come into the media zone, just come and see us. And if we're still on air, we'll try and get you in. Uh, we've got to install it into the drivers, into their. And what you've got to remember is some drivers, they, they don't want to come and talk to us. You know, there's certain drivers, you, you, I'm dragging them out the car. Come on, come on, come on. They went, but why? Why do an interview? Oh, I'm not bothered. Because some people are camera shy. You know, they don't, they, they're, they're, they don't want to be on the TV. They, they're kind of, my English is not super great. Oh, I'm not really bothered. I, I, I'm happy just to stay out of the way. And you're like, kind of, yeah, but the fans want to kind of hear from more different people. And the people at the front end of the field, they've done more interviews. So they're more confident of doing the interviews. And my argument to the people in three and juniors is the more you do interviews, the more confident you will get. <laughs> so yeah, it's sure. kind of, we're trying to help you here. So it's difficult, but unfortunately with, it's just not a viable product to do it. It's, uh, and, and I would love it. I mean, you've got, a, you came to Kenya to work, but you came to Kenya as well. I remember meeting you in, Kat, uh, in, in Doha airport. And then the, we had that three hour drive from N N Nairobi to Nevada. <laughs> that drive was and, mental, it, like it, landed there. Where's the road? Uh, we're, we're actually driving yeah. here. <laughs> we, we were driving down, a, we were driving down the side of the railway line. We were, we were like, what is going on? And, but you came there as a fan, having been a customer and a viewer of all live. And I remember we, we had lunch together because we went in the, we, we got to the hotel and you said, what are you doing this afternoon? And I was like, I'm going to service. What, straight away? Well, I'm going to have lunch and then we're going to service. Right, can I come with you? Yes. And I just remember you taking pictures of, oh my God, oh my God. Well, <laughs> I must have I don't seen think... such an obvious newbie. <laughs> no, but, but it was, but, but you were like kind of, so that's how that happened. I, I understand why that doesn't happen now. And I think until you actually either can be invited to work or in invite, I mean, you were down to do an interview with the president. You were sent to Nairobi to do an interview with the president and then that changed, but then you got another job and, and it's just, an, it's an ever moving. You, you, gotta prepare, you can't prepare for anything, but you have to prepare for everything. That's the yeah. strangest thing to say, but you don't prepare for this because you might get it taken off you because we want you to go and do that. And I mean, you had, I know you had, you had two hotels in Kenya. I think you had three hotels in, in Athens, in, 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 in Greece or something. It, it just, it, it's just, it's you not realising, I'm checking out this morning. What do you mean I'm checking out? Hang on. Yeah, I'm I, I need another bag. And you, you, you need to take a bag just for one night somewhere rather than taking the big kit bag you've got. And then that kit bag goes into the reception. Because, and like, oh, which car am I going in? Oh, well, you're going in this car, but you're going to come back in that car. And someone is working... And I, until you actually physically sample it and do it and it works, you think it's a miracle this actually makes it onto the television. It's incredible. It is a miracle it actually makes it, it with all of the things that are going on. And something that Formula One can do, you know, you said you watch the Formula One, when you're watching that, they analyse each corner, they, you know, they can watch the, the free practice beforehand, they can obviously watch the qualifying, and you get all that data, whereas in rallying, you know, they do the recce, 
and you don't get a massive insight to that from what I saw, but unless you're in the know like yourself, you know who to ask, but yeah. then you have all the different stages and you can't quite get that um, expert, tiny, tiny, minute detail that say Formula One get, as I say, with data. Um, how do you find that as a commentator, you know, going through these stages and you're having to really react because you see it almost the same time as the people at home watching? We, we are seeing exactly what, what the viewer at home sees. We have, yes, we have split times, but the viewer at home can have split times depending on what package they buy. Uh, and th this, we see it as you do. We're watching it live, live. We, we don't have it 20 seconds, 30 seconds before such. It, it, there might be the delay. If you're running it through an internet, there might be like a, a five, 10 second delay, but as such, it is the same time. There's no pre-seeing anything. And we might get told something in our ears from the director. We've got Tanak going slowly on our helicopter. We're about to show you the picture. That might be the only information we get. Or it might be, we're swapping shots because something's happening, you know? And then we're kind of like, oh, we're getting news in. We're getting news in. Oh, it's whoever it is, you know, and, and things like that. So yeah, we, we're seeing it at the same time, 99% of the 99% of the time we're seeing it at the same time. And I I'm, I feel I'm very good at picking up on stuff very quickly. So anything that's going on, I feel I'm very good at, why is that car on that angle? Why is that car, that car's not going very fast. Oh, hang on, it's down a little bit. That camera angle looks a bit cockeyed from when I remember in the stage before. Is there something wrong with the front left or the right rear or whatever? So it's it's we don't have huge amounts of info before we see it on the television very little information going on about your analyzing this is something i would love to bring into into all live i i would love to uh but again it's 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 a lot of money i'd love to have like a a tv monitor there a big tv and get in at, at where we've got a camera on the outs external camera or good in car and actually show, well, this is where so-and-so, so-and-so gained that time. He, 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 so let's go to Croatia last year in the power stage. Elvin Evans and uh, Ogier in going into that final stage, hardly anything between them. Evans made a mistake, ran wide, virtually the last corner. I would love to split screen this afterwards and just kind of go through the gears. They're both in fifth gear. Uh, Evans breaks a little bit later. Evan, I would love to do that. But this is, again, we would need an editor. We would need a producer. We would need, a, 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 all of a sudden you're adding potentially, you're way into double figures, euros wise, just to potentially do that three or four times a weekend. And are we gonna gain hundreds of thousands of subscribers to WRC Plus because I'm standing in front of it? It's something I wanna do. It is something I want to do, and and depending on how well we can get it done, and if we have the right time, we try and still do this kind of thing. But it's something I would love to really do. Like you see Sky, Sky Sports F1 do it. it. It's fascinating when they absolutely analyze every single breaking point and thing. I, I would really like to do that. And for me, that's the next step with All Live. Of, of, and COVID hit us quite hard in, in 2020, 2021. Of We can't go inside the teams at the moment. And because when we were allowed inside the teams, you could you were free to walk around and you would spot stuff and you could just grab your camera around and go, I've just spotted this behind Hyundai. Now, this is 
and we've lost that as well. So we, those kind of things that you don't normally see as a viewer, because you're only looking at the TV screen that we are seeing all the time with our eyes. Now, because we can't just stroll through a team to see something out the back of, well, uh, uh, there, there is that that's just come off that car because we can't do that now. It, we are, and I think the teams are enjoying that a little bit because they've been able to hide stuff a little bit more from us. Um, but we lost that because we had that in 18 and 19 of uh, you were basically any, anything or anything, anybody or anything was filmable and we could film it and comment on it. But now we're, we're a bit more restricted with that stuff. And, but the teams are great. They are on board. They know we need some personalities. I, I, we, we, the problem is, is it's the devil in the deep blue sea. We have only three teams. Uh, I personally think we don't need any more than five because I think if we had more than five, the championship becomes then you're going to have a strong and a weak, a good and a bad. And, and if the team that's the same team always getting beat, their manufacturer is just not going to pay. They're going to pull out because they've not been successful. So if you have too many teams, there's always going to be winners and losers and the losers will disappear. And that makes your championship look bad. Whereas if you have four or five, nearly always you will be getting a podium somewhere every one or two, three rallies. And I think with only having three manufacturers at the moment, this does cause us a bit of an issue of no one really wants to upset anybody because if one manufacturer goes, you're then left with two. And then it's kind of like, uh, and you know, so I think, and because there's so few seats, the drivers are not as vocal as what they were in the past because they dared upset the management because if they lose their drive, they, they can't just go and drop into a team that's lower down the ranks with their experience to potentially pull that team up because there isn't that team lower down the rank. So at the minute, it's I think what we've got is very, very good. Three good manufacturers. A fourth would be nice. A fifth would be as much as I would want to see. Um, three cars per team I, as a mandatory thing. You know what I mean? That would be like a great thing because sometimes we have seen M Sport just running two, but you know, that kind of thing. But yeah, for me, we need a few Marcus Gronomes, Colin McRae's, Richard Burns. We, we need a few. Oh, Tanak's great. He's good and bad. I, I mean, on a morning service when, when we divide who's doing what and uh, I, I walk in and I get told, you're doing Hyundai. I'm like, no, no, Oitanak <laughs> at five o'clock in the morning. Yeah, uh, yeah and, it, and it's kind of, but it's, it's satisfying. It is satisfying, but you know it's going to be hard work and you have no idea what you're going to get from him. But, but we need some characters. You know, you, you, Ogier is the world's perfect statesman. Oh, Ogier is just selling the way he conducts himself, the way he does his job, the way he talks to the media. He's, he's honest. He's, he's, he's brutal in times. You know, he, if something's not right, he will tell you. And if you say something in a question that he doesn't agree with, he will say, I don't agree with you. You know, he's, he's, you, you kind of got to go in there with your, your helmet on because if you word something slightly wrong or you might say, well, Sebastian, you, you did say at the end of that. And he might, no, 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 I didn't say that. What I said was this. So you've got to make, he's very aware of what he said, where he said it and things like that. But Oji is great. I mean, they're all good. They are all good. Some of, some of you enjoy doing more than others. Um, but unfortunately, we, with only having three teams, I think 
everyone's just a little bit scared of just being a bit more of their personality and they're a bit more outspoken because there's such limited seats and that potentially is what we need. And then, then you might get a, a, like a, a Netflix Formula One drive to survive and things like that, you know? Amazing, it's, yeah. Uh, it, it, it has been talked about, but I, we've just not, well, one, we've not got enough people as in teams and cars, um, but we do have support categories, you know, to see two, threes and juniors. So we've got support categories. But uh, it's it, it's. It's I a vicious think, circle, isn't it? You haven't. Yeah, it's, it's a vicious circle. Massively. There was people looking around. It wasn't Netflix, but there was people looking around to 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 see if there was a potential to do a a a kind of behind the scenes thing. And uh, I think if they'd been on two or three, four rallies and seen the highs and lows that you see when you're on every rally, I, I for me there is there is definitely course to do one series anyway definitely course to do one series and see how it goes but it it, it might need some investment i don't know either from the fia the promoter the teams it might need funding to get it off the ground to sell it so that someone's not putting a whole load of money in and if i'm honest i'm not saying that formula one didn't pay for their netflix first first series you know you wonder did they pay say we'll cover the costs but if you like it, you've got to take it for five years or something like this, and you've got to pay us this much money. Is it that kind of business where you've got to spend something to potentially get it back in the long in the long term? I, I'm not sure, but but we do need more characters. We've got characters. We need our characters to shine. I, I was listening to a podcast. Um, I've not finished it, but it's the the chap who's taken over the FIA, and he's a rally man, isn't he? So I'm really yeah, 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 Mohammed bin Salam. Yeah, that's one yeah. I don't want to mispronounce, but um, yeah. that's really promising, and I think that's really exciting, and I hope that yeah. filters down. But he said about the personalities, but I think you're completely right because we are just they're just not allowing themselves, as you said, there's. There's only so many seats and there's so much money, so much pressure. This, this is it. This is the thing. It's, it's the personalities are there. They are there. You know, um, you, you go and talk to, to these people off, off camera and they are just this and that and that. But as soon as the camera's on them, they, they have a job to do. They're representing a brand. They're representing partners and things like this. So it is, it is very difficult. It's no, it's no different to you and me. When, when I go on a rally and I'm employed by a WRC promoter, I might not agree with something that that's just an absolute joke, but I can't say it because that would be then going against the FIA and the WRC promoter. So you've got to be careful with how you put your points of view over and things. I'm no different, you're no different. And when you, if you're being employed by somebody, there is a, a, a line that you've got to stay on and not go over. And that's no different for drivers, mechanics, media, you, me, whatever it is. Um, but I think social media potentially ruins some of it because everything's filmed, everything's photographed. People can't be themselves a little bit. Um, but yeah, we have characters. We just need them to be able to f- express themselves a bit more and not be under this constant fear that they might lose their jobs. And, and again, that's no different to people like you or me as well. That anybody, We all love what we do. Uh, it's a great opportunity that we have um, and we're all kind of like don't want to lose our job so we're all kind of like slightly under the radar with what we really think sometimes you know um, but but yeah let's see but it'll, it'll be interesting to see how it develops.
Now, I'm conscious of time because you got to go have your lunch. Can I ask three quick fire round questions? Yep. They're quite intense. I hope you don't mind. Who's the one to watch for this year? 2022, who's the one to watch? Um, Not to say they're going to win, but who's the one who's going to be most interesting? Uh, well, I want to watch who's the most interesting. Come on, that's like two questions. So I'm getting told off with the expert now. Yeah, I really believe um, now there's a, a different car and I, he's had a little bit of insight to the car. I, I think Oktanak should be back to his ultimate best. He was phenomenal in 2020 20 and 21 in the Hyundai. His speed was incredible. He was let down by unreliability, you know, whatever it was, wheel falling off, car stopping, things like this, uh, whatever it was. Oitanak didn't have two great years, but he got into a car that was built and developed by Thierry Neuville. This new car, I'm not saying it's not built and developed by Thierry Neuville, but Oitanak has had a big say in this car as well. So I think Tanak should be back to his ultimate best. Um, Evans, after what you've looked at, he's done in the last two years, he's got to be one of the favourites, which I think is just an amazing story because that last year he did at M Sport in 2019. I remember when he was signed, social media went berserk. How come he's got a drive? He's not worthy of a drive. He's rubbish. He's absolutely useless. Evans is at his time. He shouldn't, he's, uh, and then he, he has that near miss in Corsica. Uh, he has some good results, some big, strong performances. Then he gets taken up by Toyota. And all of a sudden, Elvin Evans is on everyone's lips. You know, he's, oh, Elvin Evans is brilliant. And it, it, this is how fickle this social media is. It's kind of like, the guy should be sacked. Now he's the best thing in the world. Come on, Elvin, <laughs> Elvin we want you to be OG. We want you to be OG. You're the only person who can get near him and, and things like this. And to see how Elvin has improved in, since, not improved, being able to express himself. He's got a two or three year contract when he's at Toyota. At M Sport, it was one year, one year, one year, not knowing until December or January that he was gonna, again, like we said very, very early on in this, in this conversation, believe in people and let people think that they're needed and they're wanted and they're respected and appreciated. Look at Elvin now. He's, just, he's not the same. He is the same person, but he's unrecognizable. The guy is fighting for a world championship with OJ in the last two years, who's one of the greatest ever drivers we will see. And this is Elvin Evans from Wales that people were like kind of writing off two years ago. He's always had it in him. He just needed that support and that belief and that opportunity. Uh, and he's got it and he's grasped it. Evans will be strong. I think we're going into this year, OJ and Lobo de Monte. I don't know whether we'll see any of them again next year. I'm not sure. One rally, two rallies, three rallies, I don't know. But Tanak is the only person regularly on the start list with a world title. Everyone else has never won a world title. It, I, I am genuinely excited for, for this season. Um, I've spoke to the Hyundai drivers. I've spoke to a couple of other people. We're all worried about the new cars. They're not going to sound very good. They've got electric. In the stage, they are full-blown world rally cars. The electric... All the electric hybrid does it in the stage is give us more speed because it gives us an extra 134 brake horsepower in spurts and starts. That's what it does. So it actually, the hybrid is making the cars faster. Apparently, this so thing, I, yeah, uh, I interviewed the Hyundai drivers last week, uh, this week. I can't remember when I interviewed them. Anyway, I interviewed <laughs> them. 
And every one of them says the noise is amazing. It's different, but it's amazing. Um, from what I've seen on testing videos and what I've heard from engineers and, and drivers, we lose anti-lag to a degree because we've got the hybrid boost. So the cars are popping and banging. There's flames coming. I've seen so many testing videos with huge flames coming out the back of these cars. We haven't had that for years. So I think there's a lot to get excited about. And the strategy, once we start to work out what they're doing, this is a big thing. There's lots of new elements and it's going to be good. But I, I, I think Tanak could be the one who hopefully doesn't dominate. But Tanak, if he, if every box is ticked and everything works right, he will be a formidable force. If you could bring back one of the great champion drivers to put into the mix for this season, as of time's gone by, who would you put in? At their prime, not I'm, as they are now. But Carlos Sainz. I, I, Carlos Sainz for me is one of the greatest ever drivers. He, he is great. I'd love to see someone like Henry Teuvenen, but Henry never won, he, he won three world rallies. Henry Teuvenen was my hero, my idol. I, I just, he was great. And he kind of potentially, I was a fan of his even before he was killed, but you know, getting killed in action potentially adds to the, the, the myth of it all and the, and the, and the hype of the person um, and things like that. But Carlos Sainz, I, it, it, even when I see him now, I'm still kind of like, oh my God, it's Carlos Sainz. <laughs> kind of like, even when I see him now. Uh, um, we last time I sat down and did an interview with him in 2019 in Spain, and we'd arranged this interview through Junior WRC because he was there with Jan Solens. And uh, Seb Scott from Juniors had said, Yeah, 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 I put Carlos, I put Carlos. And he was late and late and late. And I was like, Seb, I need him, I need, I've got another interview. And he's like, Yeah, yeah, he's just talking in there. And I said, yeah. I said, I need him now. I said, I can't be waiting much longer. And you go, I'll go and get him. And Carlos came out and goes, oh, it's you. If I'd realized it was you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know who he thought it was going to be or why I was maybe so special to him. But he was like, kind of like, ah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not a problem. That's fine. And it was kind of like, yeah, let's get on with it. And it was like, yeah, I, I think Carl Sainz, great. Absolutely great. I mean, yeah, you look back, Gronholm, like Mackinnon, Burns, McCrazy. But I, had a, I did have a real big soft spot for, for Carlos. His worth ethic and everything, his testing, his ability, just the whole round package. Carlos Sainz. Last question. Top three for Monte Carlo. In the order or who will just be on the podium? I think on the podium. Oh, that would be too... Okay. I don't know if I'm actually really yeah. allowed to ask you that question. So I'll go for top Well, three. no, you can ask it. But if you'd asked me that without the new cars... I could have given you a podium. I'd have happily given you a top three, but we have no idea how good or That's bad any of these cars I are. Can't this is it. wait to watch it. You can't write off Ogier. He, he he manages that rally so well. He manages that rally so well. So Ogier, I believe, will be on that podium. Toyota will build a good car. We know that. Loeb is another one who's mastered Monty many many times, but he's coming off the back of Dakar. You know, he's he's still in Dakar. We are Tuesday, so less than a week's time, he'd be into day two of his recce of Monty. I'm not saying he's going to be tired, but Probably. his focus has been on his focus has been on Dakar for a while. He's done a lot of miles in the in the Puma, but his experience of the event, particularly if it's tricky, Loeb is an outside bet. It sounds sounds really strange. He's an outside bet for a podium, 
But if he can get on the podium, I would not be surprised if it was a top step at the podium because of, you need a complicated Monty, though, for Loeb to do that. I think if it's a nice bone-dry Monty, he might just struggle because everyone else is testing as we speak, and he's not. So he, he's, he's losing seat time. Mm. If it's a complicated Monty, I think Loeb has a big chance. Um, Neuville can, Neuville's very good in Monty. Tanak's never really had a great Monty. But I would say, I would give you four of four of three people. It'd be Ogier, oh, chasing. <laughs> no, it's Loeb, but Loeb, I think, will either probably Loeb potentially will win it or not be on the podium. Uh, but Ogier, Evans, and I think Tanak. I, I see Tanak as being unbelievably. I see a, a, the, the potential for ultra domination. With Tanak. I mean, I don't know how good the car is. I don't, if that car's good, he's had two years of being like a caged lion where he's just not been able to do anything. And uh, he'll come out to just, if he's in the, the right frame of mind, the car, if it's good and it's competitive, you know, he, he's ruthless. He, 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 he led more stages than anyone else last year. He won more stages than anyone else last year. You know, he, he, when you look, he should have won. He, it's all ifs and buts. He was clear in Portugal and Sardinia uh, when they had the issues. Uh, frustration in Estonia, uh, stupidity, frustration, I don't know what you want to call it. Getting one puncture, then crashing out and getting another puncture in the following stage. That's born out of frustration, you know what I mean? Because he's having such a poor year for the rest of it. But for me, Tanak. Tanak and Evans have got to be your title favourites. Um, but then Craig Breen's got this opportunity, this love. We talk about it again. This Someone's believing in him. There's a two-year contract. Come on. We need you to lead our team. All of a sudden, he's got all the testing he wants in the world. He's got a team behind him. He's got, he's got this, this season campaign that he's dreamed of for so long. What does that do to him? Does that just give him another tenth of a second per kilometre? You know, that having that belief of someone behind him you're our man. You're, you're going to do this for us. And again, confidence, you know, so is it, uh, there's not that pressure of having to perform every single stage because that might be your last stage. It's you're here for two years. You're, you're, we, we believe in you. We believe you can do it. Craig Breen could be a dark horse, a, a, a big dark. If that Puma is as good as what the Fiesta was when it came out in the late, in the last regulations, Breen is no slouch. Fast rallies, Finland's, Estonia's, Ypres. Craig Breen is, has got podiums. He hasn't got podium on a slow rally. He's a ballsy driver. It's a big speed driver, you know? And uh, so let's see what Craig Breen can do as well. Julian, thank you so much. I can't believe how much you've given me. Thank you so much. And I'm so excited. I just can't wait. I'm sorry I'm not going next I, week, I can't, I can't wait. wait I, I'm excited. I, I'm excited. We're with the launch uh, before. So we're in Austria for the launch and then Obviously, we've got Monty, so it should be uh, it should be good. But yeah, let's let's hope that uh, the fans are pleased with what we what we see and hear. The cars look great. Uh, let's let's just hope that the fans are pleased with what we see and hear, and the drivers can get into a real fight. And I think losing the two Sebs just gives everybody a chance. You know, we're 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 back to a very level playing field. There's not that person who is head and shoulders above like like Ogier was and and Loeb were. So I, I think we could be in for a, uh, a, a new era and a new dawn and a, a, 
of superstardom. And that was Julian Porter. I hope you enjoyed the very long interview. I'm very, very grateful to Julian for giving me so much of his time. I wonder what your predictions are going to be for the World Rally Championship. Do let me know. Get in touch on social media at Paveley Motorsport. I'd love to hear them. Um, my next podcast may take a little bit of a time to come out because um, you may have seen on my social media that my family business is moving premises at the moment. So we're moving from Austin Broadway and Sladidno to Argyle Road on um, the road next to the retail park in Sladidno. And it's a big move for us. And it's quite um, not just a physical move, but quite a big emotional move, I think, for my family because we took over the Honda dealership in North Wales 10 years ago. And I was 19 and just left school, really, and rocked up to this building with this business and now we're moving it and growing it and it's so exciting and the team working really hard so there's a lot going on communicating that to customers and we've got a new car launch next week the new sport are just coming out motorsport lounge has got events going on silverstone rally school also has an event on the 16th of february it's a night rally event um but it's for people with experience and without experience to come and drive from the cars as it goes dark during the day which will be really exciting and i've also been helping ross my partner with some of the forest experience rally school bits and bobs as well so and that's not even half of it so yeah there's lots so i will get back to you because i have someone in mind that i hinted to before my previous podcast that i have released earlier this year and uh, i can't wait to to speak to him so all will be revealed thank you so much for supporting my podcast and thank you for bearing with me i sound like i'm full of cold so sorry if that was a bit off the tank <laughs> But keep an eye out on my social media and take care and stay safe.